Hello, everyone, and welcome to Walking with the Tengu, a podcast exploring classic texts for the modern martial artist. Today, we're going to continue our walk through the first chapter of the Tengu Geijutsu Ron. And I'll be honest here, there's still a lot in these works, particularly this one, that I do not understand. After the last episode, the Tengu continued to spend quite a bit of time talking about form and chi and mind how one follows the other, and how trying to short-circuit this process results in problems. My understanding of what was being discussed here and how it relates to the modern martial arts was stretched very thin, and I'm going to leave it for now, moving on to the next part that I think might be of more interest to you. The Tengu says, There are a great many people who, while intending to put up a stout defense when meeting a strong but unskillful man, are soundly beaten and are unable to commence an attack with the sword they have. This is all because they introduce intention. End quote. This, and the analysis that follows, is really insightful. What martial artist hasn't thought about what it would be like to go up against an untrained but big and strong opponent? I know I have. It comes up a lot in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, as they tend to have some pretty good success in that arena when it involves a one-on-one. Yet, I know from watching martial arts movies that the idea of the smaller, weaker practitioner defeating the larger, stronger opponent is a theme that spans generations. It's built into the origin myth of Wing Chun. It is the theme of the Karate Kid, and it was the main selling point of the old Charles Atlas ads involving a teenage boy having sand kicked in his face by a taller, more muscled boy. Of course, all this in front of his girlfriend. Isai Chozanshi explains the scenario as the larger, stronger man, though untrained, approached the conflict free from fear. His mind is not clouded, so he's able to act naturally, and that because of this, his mind and chi act naturally. He goes so far as to state, his level of chi is at a place where it can overcome others far more than that of what the world generally calls martial artists." End quote. This isn't actually a good thing, according to Isai's. It relies on blind emotion, which makes a lot of sense. When we consider what was said in the last episode about technique and principle, if we find ourselves in a self-defense conflict and we're trying to think of specific techniques to be performed on our attacker, we will lose. We have to free our mind from specific thought about techniques and act on natural inborn instinct with our trained principles and body mechanics. This is also why having training that works with our instincts rather than against it is something important to consider. This may come up in your training as being told to respond based on what your opponent does, taking what your opponent gives you, so to speak. Now there's a point where you can transcend your training partner enough that it starts to make sense to try for something specific and intentionally. This should result in failure in your part as you learn the holes in your training. This is one way that you can keep yourself humble, provide quality training with less skilled training partners, and simultaneously improve your own skill in your art of choice. When sparring with a less skilled opponent, my BJJ teacher will intentionally put himself into weak or difficult positions, and then try to work his way out of these worst-case scenarios to a specific submission. Does that mean when one of us less skilled students succeeds at performing a technique on him that we have defeated him? Of course not. If he chose to use the fullness of his skill and ability, we would simply be finding out how many times we could be defeated in the span of moments rather than minutes. This training modality is reversed when faced with a self-defense situation. 
there may be a generic end goal, a win condition, so to speak, such as escape this person and run away through that specific door, or perhaps hold this person down until the police arrive. If you're up against a less skilled, untrained opponent of relatively similar size and strength, you can probably get away with having intention. But when you're just barely surviving against an opponent who is bigger, stronger, and faster than you, muddying your mind with specific intent can be your end. Responding instinctively with no specific technique, but with principles in response to what your overwhelming opponent gives you, is a path to victory, however we may define that. For me, that may simply be, do not get knocked out and escape. Sometimes defeating my opponent doesn't mean I injure or subdue him, but instead simply last long enough for help to arrive. Alright, so Isai continues here. Martial artists today do not know the practical application of the unmoving essence of mind and unobstructed freedom. Using conscious skill, they squander their spirit on trivial techniques, and with this, they think that they are fully comprehending the martial arts. Thus, they are unable to understand other martial arts. End quote. Once again, he could be describing the state of martial arts today. In an age of easy access to all kinds of information, especially for martial artists, YouTube, we must guard ourselves against the bad information out there. For all the access to good training we have now, which is a good thing, there is just as much, if not more, bad information out there polluting people's training. This section finishes with, Nevertheless, the martial arts are manifold. If you disciplined yourself in them one by one, you could spend your entire life doing so, but never understand them all. Know that you should use your mind well, penetrating just one of them and leaving the others alone. So I'm of two minds on this. The first is to immediately jump to the defense of cross-training. I truly think of the various skill sets that surround the martial arts to all be important. I'm talking in generalities here, yes, striking, grappling, weapons, but also conditioning, first aid, and de-escalation, among others. Each are tools in our so-called tool belt that we must use at their appropriate time for the appropriate problem. Having said that, I also kind of agree with Isai here in that trying to train many martial arts all at once can be very counterproductive. Now, at his time the arts were organized into schools called Ryu. This, late in the Tokugawa era, many of the schools had lost or forgotten portions of their original curriculum that had allowed them to be complete tool sets, as I've described. In Japanese, they called this Sogo Bujutsu, and was indicative of an integrated system that included a lot of skills. This could be strategy, wilderness survival, divination, spear use, archery, horse riding, swimming, and a host of other skills. As the Tokugawa era of peace progressed, and succeeding generations were further removed from battlefield experience, many Ryu specialized into subsets of these skills. Some were sword dueling schools, some just focused on firearms or archery from horseback, and so on. Some even tried to retain their complete curriculum as best they could. Yet, these schools, for what they were, were more likely, in my estimation, to still be a bit more complete than today's over-specialized arts. True, there are systems of training today that are more broad and incorporate a wider variety of skills, 
However, Esai's statement that one should focus on one school and leave the others alone still applies for his time period and for ours. Now, times have changed, so while I would still encourage you to cross-train, what I would take from this is not to cross-train too early. Spend enough time in a base art as your foundation so that you can have a good grasp of their foundational principles. Not techniques, principles. Harkening back to my description of the shuhari concept in an earlier episode, this concept of learning in the Japanese martial arts, uh, this would be your transition from shu to ha. From when you adhere strictly to the teachings of your art and begin to break away and digress. Now, most of us are just hobbyist students. Some of us are hobbyists who teach after hours, but still have a, a real job. A few are full-time instructors. Unless you work in security, law enforcement, or the military, it's unlikely that your martial arts has much direct impact on your profession. The point then, as it is now, is that we don't have enough hours in the day to do everything. Better to be good at just a few things than to have a very broad but shallow skill set. For practical purposes, then, I would recommend finding the art that you will consistently train in and fulfills your purpose for training. What that purpose is, naturally, is left up to you. Think carefully about what that means. That's all for today. Make sure to subscribe, leave a review or rating wherever you find your podcasts so as to help the show reach more people like yourself. You can find us on social media, and if you'd like to hear more, go to patreon.com slash walkingtengu to help cover the cost of making this podcast. Even the smallest amount helps. If you want to buy one of these books, check out our reading list at walkingtengu.wix, that's w-i-x dot com slash tengu. You'll need to scroll down to the entry titled reading list, but by buying a book through those links, you'll also be able to support the show. Thank you for listening, and talk to you again soon.